0: Okay. Uh, thank you so much, Barbara, for the introduction. Um, thanks, everybody, for for coming. Uh, now that I know that there's an emergency exit there, the urge to run out of it is, is very strong. But I shall try and try and resist it. Okay. I'm just gonna set my timer. Okay. Can everyone hear? Okay. Yeah. Cool. Great. So, um, Royal Irish Academy manuscript uh, 23P. 16, Catalogue number 1230, commonly known as the Lauer Brach, is, uh, as we just heard, an early 15th century manuscript. But the texts that are contained within its pages vary wildly um, in their date of original composition. Uh, as I'm sure we'll hear in much more detail over the next uh, day and a half, there are texts in the manuscript um, which date from the Old Irish period, so before 900, Uh, from the Middle Irish period, that's from circa 900 to to 1200, and uh, from the early modern Irish period, from circa 1200 uh, up to the creation of the manuscript uh, itself in the years between 1408 and 1411. Um, The majority of the texts in the manuscript are written in Irish, so many are written in Latin, and uh, still others alternate between the two. Uh, making the Brac uh, a fascinating case study in bilingualism. The uh, thematic concerns uh, of the uh, texts within the Brac are predominantly religious. Um, so, you know, we could think about the contents of the manuscript in terms of, of language uh, and the dating of the texts. We th- could think about it in terms of its evidence for the, for the religious and devotional uh, cultures of medieval Ireland. Um, or we could think about its various genres of texts, such as the sermons that we'll be hearing about this afternoon. Um, or we could take a look, close look at certain individual uh, standout texts such as the of Oinger, the Martyrology of Oingus, or Ashlinger Mackolina, the vision of Mac Conlina, uh, both of which we'll be hearing about tomorrow, tomorrow morning. Um, we can think about the manuscript's scribe and the circumstances in which uh, it was created, and we can think about uh, the manuscript's later history and how it came to be housed here in the Royal Irish Academy. Um, again, both topics that will be uh, addressed tomorrow. But I want to, to kick us off by approaching the manuscript from a, a slightly oblique uh, angle, but um, one that I hope um, can shed a bit of light on on a range of uh, the texts that are preserved uh, preserved within it, Um, and that's via a consideration of just some of the manuscripts' varied um, considerations of place, Um, and in particular, sort of sacred space uh, in in various guises. There are many, many places mentioned in the Lauerbrach, There are imagined places such as uh, heaven and hell, as described in in Fish Aravnan, the vision of Aravnan. And there's even the strange uh, food based uh, world, conjured up by Anair Makonglinna in in Ashlinga Makonglinna, which we shall no doubt hear about um, tomorrow. but I'm focusing on real places, uh, and there are many of them, towns, cities, uh, countries, and ecclesiastical sites that are mentioned uh, in, in the manuscript. And my, my focus, my approach is, is on kind of what I'm characterizing as sacred geography, um, reflecting the religious nature of the texts that I, that I want to um, talk about. Um, and so that's going to range from individual Irish churches on the, on the one hand. Um, to the manuscript's very significant interest in global history, or global history as conceived in the Middle Ages, um, on on the other. And uh, I'll sort of, towards the end, uh, focus on the significance um, for the manuscript of what is commonly referred to as the Holy Land, uh, that is the geographic region of Palestine, uh, which is roughly coterminous with the modern states of of Israel, Palestine, and part of Jordan. Um, now this region is holy to and contested by adherents of many religions, including G- Judaism and Islam, uh, both of which religions will become sort of relevant uh, towards the end. But the, the focus of my paper is, um, it's imagining as a Christian space, uh, as it was conceived by the original authors of the texts that I'm gonna be talking about, and indeed the later scribe of the lower bracket itself. Um, So, in that regard, it's important to to know that in medieval Irish conceptions of geography, um, the Holy Land, and and specifically Jerusalem, were the geographical centre of the world, Um, and as many Irish writers of the Middle Ages state, um, Ireland was at the world's edge, um, the world's northern edge. So, I'd like to suggest over the course of my paper, however, um, that the manuscript's continual hopping around from centre to periphery, from Holy Land to Ireland and everywhere in between, um, further afield as well to other parts of of Africa, Asia and and Europe, um, that it serves a purpose in that it uh, creates an image of, of, of a universal church. Um, a Christian faith that is shared across uh, borders and cultures. And Ireland's role within that faith is depicted as being integral, as integral as that of key sites like Jerusalem and Rome, um, thereby placing centres and peripheries on equal footing, as it were. Okay. I think that's my argument, such as I have one, anyway. Anyway. Um, okay, so the manuscript actually begins with a geographical statement, the, the very first uh, sentence of the very first text in the manuscript. Um, uh, the, so the first text at the, at the start of the manuscript is the so-called Passion of the Image of Christ, um, and it begins with the words, there is a royal city in Asia called Caesarea, Cappadocia. Um and so, so as I say, this is the very opening of the manuscript. It's, it's itself a, a geographic statement. Um, and the passion of the image of the Christ uh, uh, opens with uh, a gathering of people in, in Caesarea. So the, the sages and holy seniors and um, faithful overseers uh, of Asia and very many Christians of all the East came to this city, Caesarea, and also other noble crowds came from every quarter to the same city. It was for this purpose that the faithful of Asia Minor in general assembled, to hold a synod and council to strengthen and fortify the faith and belief of the Church of the Living God. Um, So so the opening of the manuscript already draws us far from from Ireland. Um, And uh, I think, you know... We, the readers, are in a way akin to those people traveling um, to to the synod uh, in in Caesarea, traveling across Asia to gather uh, in a city in in what is now modern-day Turkey. Um, But this opening is in itself merely a prologue um, because uh, the synod at Caesarea has been uh, gathered together Or convened um, in order to uh, discuss the problem of how to understand the theological significance of an image of Christ that uh, is seen to um, have blood and water uh, pouring from it. Okay, so it's it's bleeding and and, uh, and pouring water from it. And the archbishop stands up at this synod and announces that he can solve the problem of the, the miraculous statue, um, and he starts to read from a book by Athanasius of Alexandria, which is the real passion of the image of Christ, to which this gathering of Christians in Caesarea is simply a prologue. Okay, so it's, it's, it sets up the, the archbishop then re- reading from Athanasius. Okay. Um, Athanasius is a a church father who lived in the 4th century in what's uh, now modern-day Egypt, and his account of the passion of the image of Christ, which is then, you know, reported or adapted in in the Lourdes Brach, opens by stating that this image of Christ, which is bleeding and, and is miraculous and so on, has been created in Syria. Um, So before we've even got to the end of the first column of text on the first page of the manuscript, we have been transported uh, from uh, Turkey to Syria via Egypt. Um, And the manuscript certainly starts as it means to go on, uh, because the the next text then in the Lower Brach is an account of the 4th century Pope Sylvester I, and um, is therefore based in in Rome at the time, uh, as the the text says, uh, of the persecution of the Christians in Rome. Um, From Rome, we then head in the next text back to Egypt, um, this time to to Upper Egypt, so from the south of Cairo to now what's Lake Nasser, where the Aswan Dam is. uh, and that is the setting for a, a fragmentary account, and now a fragmentary account, There's a bit of the manuscript is missing here, um, of the meeting between Onufrius the hermit and Paphnutius the ascetic in, in the desert. And then for the next text, we go back to Rome again, this time uh, for a text called The Passion of Marcellinus, um, who was the pope. Uh, who was Bishop of Rome during the first years of the Diocletianic persecution of Christians at the beginning of the 4th century. Um, now, this uh, the persecution uh, when Marcellinus was, was Pope was uh, so ferocious that uh, he, the Pope himself, was thought to have resorted to idolatry in order to escape um, torture and execution. So... Our Irish account, again, evinces an interest in the geographical extent of the church um, as bishops gather from all over Europe for a meeting to discover the truth of the accusations of idolatry against Marcellinus. Um, So this is my next uh, quote. Um, So uh, we see then that the the bishops of the east of Europe um, all assembled to Rome about this matter from three-cornered Spain on the west and from Sicily in the south, and uh, from Magna Graecia over the Tyrene Sea, to the north, and from every land in general, uh, so that nearly all the bishops in Europe came to Rome. Um, so again, like this, this concern with the, the, the geographic extent of the European church. Um, Marcellinus confesses to his idolatry. He vacates the papacy, and he goes to the emperor Diocletian, uh, to bear witness to his Christian faith, uh, to which Diocletian responds by having Marcellinus beheaded. Um, so it's only after this text, which is the fourth, even uh, I don't think the, the first chasm is very big. I think um, it's, it's probably just um, part of the, the meeting of the ascetics in the desert. So, so it's only after this, this fourth text, the fifth text in the manuscript, um, that we finally get our first text that is actually devoted to Irish matters, okay? Um, and that's namely the rule of the Cayla Day, uh, ascribed to Mwail Ruin of Tala, um, about which I'm sure we might be hearing something later uh, this afternoon. But we should not be surprised by this, okay? Um, when we look at many of the so-called kind of great manuscripts of medieval Ireland, some of which have already been the subject of, of conferences in this series, uh, such as Lev and Hizra, uh, the Book of Ballymote, the uh, Book of Iwanya. Um, we can see that they, these manuscripts often open with texts that are more concerned with what we would call universal history. Um, texts such as uh, the, the Irish etates Mundi, Six Ages of the World, for example, um, before moving to texts with a specifically Irish focus. So we might argue that the Laura Brach is is doing sort of an ecclesiastical version of the same phenomenon, beginning with the universal church um, and its foundations in Asia, Africa, and Europe before moving to Irish-focused texts. And yet, like those other manuscripts, um, sorry, I just meant to put on the world map there, um, like those other manuscripts, the Lourdes uh, frequently returns to non-Irish themes throughout the course of the manuscript and juxtaposes the universal with the local. So um, a homily on St. Martin of Tours is followed by uh, A Life of Bridget. Um, a homily on St. Michael is followed by Cain Davnik, the, the Irish Legislation on Sunday observance. Uh, The deeds of Alexander the Great are followed by the humorous narrative Ashlinga mekong binner Uh, The legend on the finding of the cross is followed by a series of texts associated with St. Colm Killer. Um, There's no distinction in the manuscript between Irish-focused and internationally focused uh, material, and the movement back and forth is so continual as to feel purposeful, I think. Um, But this... uh, Geographical spread applies also to the to the specifically Irish focused material too, um, and and it seems to me kind of striking, given how easily uh, and often we tend to talk about propaganda, and the various ways that individual Irish churches competed with each other, uh, jostling for status by promoting like the cult of their own particular founder founder saint. Um, Is is that when we take the contents of the Laura Brach in their totality, um, we see what looks to me more like an attempt at comprehensiveness um, rather than the promotion of a particular saint or a particular location or region. Now, it might be that some of the cases, uh, or that the papers that are going to follow me uh, might contradict me on this, and I'll, actually, I'll be very interested to hear what my fellow speakers have to say, for example, about the Kayla Day material uh, in the manuscript, which obviously is associated with particular churches, such as Talla, and even the title of Ruri's paper with Connor and the title is now worrying me that I might be about to be proved wrong. Um, but I think um, there is a comprehensiveness there. Aside from this focus on the universal church, we see texts about... The three major saints of Ireland, Patrick, Bridget, and Column Killer. Um, and we see texts such as the Failure Oingasa, which is an extremely comprehensive guide to the saints of both the Universal Church and the saints of Ireland, both well known and obscure um, alike. And uh, I've been doing some research recently on, on a short 10th century story found in the Lauerbrach on um, the Clonmacnoise bishop, Cabra Crum, and his encounter with the ghost or spirit of the former king while Shechnol Macmailarunada. And taken in isolation, this story is an unabashed piece of Clon McNoy's propaganda, um, in which that church takes credit for having freed the soul of the late king from the torments of hell and ensured his, his entry into heaven. And yet it sits in the manus- in its manuscript context amidst texts which promotes the communities of St. Shenan at at Inniscathig, Scattery Island, um, St. Malruin at Taller, St. Ruin at Laura, St. Maling at Ferns. Um, It's an almost encyclopedic comprehensiveness of sanctity, uh, which, as I suggested earlier, seems to me to work to demonstrate that the sanctity of the periphery is is equal to that of the the center. Um, so to return to the center, I'd like to look briefly at the section of the manuscript which deals um, with the vernacular retelling of biblical narrative uh, from the creation and the fall of Adam uh, through Israel, the story of the Israel, the history of the children of Israel and the Ark of the Covenant, um, uh, the siege of uh, yeah, the birth of Christ, the siege of Jerusalem um, and the lives of the apostles. Uh, this, this kind of series of texts, this chunk of the manuscript, in, is in, in need of lots of further study, I think. But just want to highlight a, a few articles, uh, particularly those by Eric Popper, uh, which elucidate aspects of, of these texts um, and their, their sources. Um, and Eric Popper has uh, examined sections of, of the texts that are not only geographically. Interesting and are concerned with um, regions such as Africa and Asia, um, but uh, also you know, sort of go beyond just geographical um, information into what we might characterize as ethnography, um, reporting on the alleged uh, sort of marvellous characteristics of uh, the societies living in, in Ethiopia, which is uh, used as synonymous with uh, Africa in, the, in many medieval texts, and uh, in Asia, okay. um, so Popper has identified Jerome as the ultimate uh, source of some of this ethnographic material. that's talking about um, fantastical uh, peoples. But as I say, a lot of work um, uh, uh, remains to be done on this this section of the text, which again evinces this interest in in global uh, in global history. Okay. Um, my sort of final chunk or t- of text that I want to look at um, is uh, the Middle Irish adaptation of Bede's De Locus Sanctus, which follows this biblical section of um, the text in, in the manuscript. So uh, its ultimate, ultimate, ultimate source is is Adavnan of Iona's De Locus Sanctus, uh, which was written uh, in Iona in the late late seventh century. Um, But in the early 8th century, the Northumbrian monk, uh, Bede, uh, writes his own De Locus Sanctus. um, uh, Although he acknowledges his great debt to to Adavnan um, as as his source. Uh, And what we have in the Larabrac, then, is uh, a Middle Irish uh, adaptation uh, of Bede's version of De Locus Sanctus. Um, but one that is uh, particularly uh, concerned with uh, with the city of, of Jerusalem. Now, uh, this was edited uh, by Vernon uh, Hull in in 1928, um, and aside from that, I haven't been able to find a great deal of, of scholarship on it. It's, it's very briefly mentioned in what's already a very brief article by Pranches Nikahain, um, but uh, if anyone knows of anyone else who's, who's done any work on this text, I would be uh, very, interested, uh, very interested to know. Um, I, fortunately, didn't have time to do the kind of work that I would have liked to have done on this text, but I hope to do so for the published um, version of this paper because I think it's very interesting interesting text. Uh, I have a more favourable opinion of it than did its editor, Vernon Hull, who uh, says, though purporting to be a translation, it is really a paraphrase, for in keeping with the customary Irish practice, it almost never follows the text literally, omits much, and adds details quite alien to the original. Such additions as occur, the scribe may have obtained from some as yet undiscovered work, or he may have had access to an interpolated text, but judging by the source at hand, he seems to have been flagrantly careless. In particular, he is inaccurate in rendering distances. Uh, as he approaches the end, he obviously grows weary of his task. His omissions are greater, and his paraphrase assumes a more literal quality. And he just gives up as he as he goes along. Um, so, as I say, pretty neg- negative assessment uh, of of the the text. Uh, I su- suspect there might be something more going on uh, in the text. Uh, but as I, say, I haven't myself. Um, uh, had time to do the amount of work on it that I would would like to, to do. It begins by acknowledging its debt to Bede um, as, uh, as the, the source of the ad- I don't want to call it a translationary adaptation, I suppose. Um, so it begins, um, here begins an account of the holy places that are in the eastern world around Jerusalem and uh, around other sacred places according to the famous leading authority, I'm trying to prove bead. Now, Jerusalem, he says, has been situated at the centre point of the world and this goes back to my original point about the medieval conceptions of geography. Uh, Jerusalem is at the centre and it continues Mount Sion is high above it to the south of the city and there are 84 towers around the city attached to the walls with impregnable turrets and, and so on and so forth. Um, uh, now, as I say, Pranchesnikahine uh, commented very briefly on on this text, and her feeling was that the the, the Middle Irish adaptation was more concerned with Jerusalem than with other other places uh, in the Holy Land. Um, So uh, she said, for example, she said that the Irish translation tends to drop descriptions of places um, not within or near Jerusalem, um, and also it ignores extra information, uh, for example, the paucity of of trees on Mount Olivet, uh, all retained from Adabnan by Bede. Uh, And so this idea that that it's perhaps more focused on the city of Jerusalem is something that I think probably requires uh, more uh, exploration. Um, It certainly uh, seems to... to, uh, have the kind of knowledge of of, um, the the city of Jerusalem that that, uh, Bede has, which has been argued quite recently, um, is actually relatively up-to-date knowledge of the city as it was in the seventh century. Um, uh, And so it says, for example, the people who enter the city from the north go around the church of Constantine, that is the church of the martyrs, um, the church constructed on behalf of Constantine, the High King, Ardry, uh Constantine is, is, is described as, there's a conversation maybe there to be had, that terminology is why he's called High King. Um, Hull translates it as Emperor, but I think it's quite interesting that the author doesn't use the usual um, imperial terminology. Uh, and this is the reason that he had it built, his, his mother, Helena, the, the Queen, it is she who found the cross of Christ there, um, so that this place has been uh, honored uh, ever since. Uh, and in terms of the, the spatial uh, sacred geography of, of the manuscript uh, we get the actual center center point not the city of Jerusalem alone uh, but specifically um, the the church at the site at Golgotha. Um, so the uh, author of the Irish adaptation says those then who come into the city go around um, the ch- sorry that should say the church that is called uh, uh, Golgotha it's inside this church that is the rock on which Christ's cross was fixed when he was crucified, and here is the center point of the world. Yeah, like this is the, the, the specific midpoint uh, of the world um, in the in the eyes of the text. So, uh, as I say, I've, I've got work to do in looking at whether Nika Hine's uh, assessment is is. Uh, is what's going on in the text, that it has an overt um, concern with Jerusalem rather than the the sites surrounding uh, surrounding Jerusalem. Um, But the text certainly does end uh, by leaving Jerusalem and and heading to uh, Constantinople, modern day Istanbul. Um, And it it ends with a a description of the Hagia Sophia, um, and it says that, Constantinople is is surrounded by the sea on every side, um, except on uh, the north. This city contains the Church of Saint Sophia, uh, built of columns and high fortifications. uh, Inside which is a famous cabinet and beautiful treasury. Um, I'm not sure if Neve is is Neve here. No, I, I, I just thought there was yeah screen tech shrine house reliquary. Uh, Interesting term. In the northern part of this church is a wooden chest with a golden cover known as the chest of the cross of the saviour because the cross lies in the middle of it. Um, And only on three days uh, of the year is it shown, i.e. on Maundy Thursday, on Whitsuntide and on Holy Sunday. And at this time, the men of the world are accustomed to worship it. So it ends with the, the cross, obviously having been taken from Jerusalem to uh, Constantinople, and again the people of the world gathering uh, to uh, to worship this uh, to worship this cross. There's. As I say, this focus on the the Holy Land, which I think is thematically significant, and works in juxtaposition with the with the focus on uh, Irish ecclesiastical sites and and so on, um, but there is also an awareness uh, of the other faiths for whom the Holy Land is holy, um, and it sort of to to at the risk of concluding on a. An, negative note um, this creation of uh, an image of a, a universal Christianity or a universal church and uh, you know that runs I think throughout the whole manuscript um, comes at the expense of other faiths uh, and there's in particular a very very strong line of anti- Judaic uh, rhetoric throughout the whole text um, there is an awareness obviously coming from Bede that uh, Jerusalem is at the time when Bede is riding uh, uh, under Islamic rule. Um, and there's an episode that talks about uh, a coif, a cloth, a headdress head, head um, of Christ, uh, which uh, is originally in the hands of Christians and comes to be uh, taken by uh, a Jewish uh, family, and, um, And the text says, For five generations afterwards, without a break, this coif belonged to the Christians. It healed every pestilence uh, and increased every blessing. But later, the infidel Jews took the coif by force, i.e. the cloth, and so it belonged to them for a long time. But they gained only an increase uh, of their wealth from it. Because of it, they endured great strife uh, and battles. Um, And there's this sort of episode where... uh, Christians and uh, Jewish people are fighting over this this cloth, um, and uh, the text says that after six hundred years, uh, the dispute uh, was settled by someone called Madjuvius, uh, which I suspect might be uh, Muawiyah, uh, the first, the, uh, the first of the Umayyad uh, caliphate uh, rulers king of the Saracens, who then kind of gave judgment, um, uh, and there's this whole episode where he sort of uh, builds a fire and throws the cloth uh, into the, the fire and to see who catches it, and it's the Christian who who catches it and thereby gets the, the headdress. Um, but this... Uh, Kind of anti Judaic uh, strand uh, is actually quite strong in in many of the other texts that uh, I've been mentioning as uh, I've been going along and so I want to um, conclude by going back to the beginning of the manuscript to the very first text uh, that I looked at uh, which was the the passion of the image of Christ and this gives you a kind of uh, a flavor of the the um, kind of uh, commentary on Judaism that we, we find uh, in the manuscript uh, and also in other texts as, as well. So um, this image of Christ, the one that you'll remember uh, sort of loses blood and weeps uh, tears of water and so on, um, had initially been uh, brought to uh, the city of Caesarea by a, uh, uh, a Christian um, but he'd accidentally sort of left it behind uh, in, his, in his house when he moved house, uh, as you do. And uh, he uh, then, uh, the, the house had been occupied by uh, a Jewish, uh, Jewish man who, and, and it owned, like the landlord was Jewish as well. So the house belonged to a Jewish man. And when the new sort of tenant came in and sees this image of Christ, he's horrified that, you know, why, why do you have this image of, of, of Christ and, and so on? Um, and so uh, we hear, for example, that when they, the, the Jewish people had themselves seen the image, they made violent attacks and hurl, hurled fierce abuse on the man with whom it was found, inflicting intolerable suffering and tortures on him. Um, and then they threw him out of the, the synagogue and out of the town, and after flogging him, um, until they left him half dead outside. But then they flung the image of Christ uh, out onto the ground and said... An opinion has come to our ears and great counsel to our hearts, as our fathers did much of mockery and ridicule to Jesus of Nazareth and inflicted on him many varied tortures. Let us do the same to that image. And then they spat on the face and countenance of the Lord's image and hit it on the face uh, with their their hands and their their fists and continues um, in in that vein and... uh, uh, there's the ho- a whole mockery of the passion of Christ is enacted with this with this statue uh, by the community So I would suggest um, that well, this is my kind of overall uh, overarching sense if I'm looking for a kind of overarching logic within the manuscript and it's not necessarily the case that there need be one uh, but there is I think this um, construction of uh, an idea of a universal church, an idea of universal Christianity, but it comes as I say at the expense of uh, other faiths. Uh, the only really brief references to Islam are in the um, uh, the adaptation of De Locus Sanctus but there is a, a sustained anti-Judaic thread that runs through uh, uh, the whole manuscript because uh, I would suggest for um, many of the authors of the texts that are included in the manuscript, and for those who, uh, you know, continued uh, to read those texts in, in later centuries, Jerusalem was for them perhaps a more symbolic space than geographical reality uh, it was uh, seen in allegorical terms as, uh, you know, like the New Jerusalem, um, as we see in the, the the famous image in the in the Book of Amar. Um Jerusalem was conceived exegetically as an eschatological space, um, and uh, its geographical significance was as as this this centre of the world um, to which Christianity had reached uh, the edges when it had had come. Uh, to Ireland. Um, So I think the text has then a sustained engagement with uh, sacred geography whether that be um, a kind of comprehensive interest in the ecclesiastical sites uh, of Ireland or as I say a more um, universal or universalizing interest uh, in the fullest extent of uh, uh, the medieval Christian uh, world. Thank you.